Well, this is uh, the last week of a series we've been calling cold. If you remember the very first week I said, there is a sign, the Bible says, that will start happening as the appearance of Christ comes closer. Matthew 24 says, yes, there will be wars, there will be famines, earthquakes, but there's going to be something else, and it's going to happen inside our heart. It's where the love of most will start growing cold. And the idea of that is, is there will start to be this, not just this distancing from God, as we said in week one, and not just being deceived by the world's lies, but being divided. Being divided from people in our own home. Being divided from people in our own church, where our love, it will be callous and hardened, and we become kind of isolated people. And the truth of the matter is, if we are sons and daughters of light, we can't grow cold. We have to grow warm. And so this is the final week of the series on cold. And really, it's all about becoming hot, thawing out. How do we take what we've learned and apply it? The best way to illustrate it, I want to start with a story I read a couple years ago. And it's going to include this nice prop, this chair. Actually, this chair I use as a secret. I use it in that back room when I come in early before services and I pray in this chair. I usually fall asleep. It's a comfy chair. Anyhow, just to give you some insight, here's the story. A certain church member who had previously been attending services on a regular basis suddenly stopped coming to church. After some weeks, the pastor decided to visit the member it was a chilly evening, and the minister found the man at home, alone, sitting before a blazing fire. So you can imagine there's a blazing fire. Imagine there's another chair there, and then I'll sit in this chair in a second. Because, guessing the reason of the pastor's visit, the man welcomed him in, let him do a big chair by the fireplace, and he sat in the other one just waiting. The minister made himself comfortable, and he said nothing. sat there. In grave silence, he contemplated the play of the flames around the burning log. So in front of him was the fire. And he just sat there, looking at the fire. He'd probably do this if he's a pastor. Like that. It says, after some minutes, he got up, took the fire tongs. So he grabbed the fire tongs, put them in there, grabbed an ember, and put it outside the fire right there in the brick mantle. Instead, he sat down again. The host watched all of this in quiet fascination. I don't know if he's fascinated. I think he's more confused. I, I would change that word and say, the host watched this pastor wondering what's wrong with this guy in awkward silence. That's how I read it. As the lone ember's flame diminished, as it diminished, there was a momentary glow, momentary red glow. And then its fire was no more. And the ember became cold, black, and dead. Not a word had been spoken since the initial greetings, but as the minister rose to leave, the host said this, Thank you so much for your visit and for that fiery sermon. I will never forget it. The point is, this represents the community of faith, this fire, where warmth is transferred one to another. 
But then when you get pulled out and you isolate yourself, for a while you think you can maintain that heat. But after a while, you start growing cold. I think that's what happens to a lot of people. We don't see the purposes of God's design, specifically the church. And in order to thaw out, which is the title of our message, it's actually the thawing, becoming a Christian is really the process of going from death to life on a continual basis, becoming more and more alive or more and more warm. What God uses is the church. To illustrate this, I want to talk about a man. There was a man in the Bible, and his name was Saul. You've probably heard of him. He changed his name later to Paul. The first time you hear about Saul, he was at a stoning of a man by the name of Stephen. Stephen was one of the first believers. Man, he believed in Christ, but he made people mad, and Saul was there, and there was Stephen. And everybody threw their garments right next to Saul, and then they stoned Stephen. And it kind of pictures him, Saul, being pleased with the death of a Christian. He was affirming this stoning, this murderous stoning. The next chapter, it says Paul was so mad at Christians, he started traveling with breathing anger at him, where he wanted to gather them and kill them all. So the first time we see Saul, we see him as a hater of Christianity a hater of the church, and murderous. I want you to turn in the book of Acts. One of the very last times we see him, I want to show you the difference. In my mind, this is, um, this is a rare thing for a man to do. Acts chapter 20. And we're going to look at verses 36 to 38. Now, the first time we saw him, which you just heard, he was participating in the stoning of Stephen. The next, this picture is going to show a man with the elders of a church called Ephesus. And he's going to leave them. But watch the picture as he leaves. Starting in verse 36, and when he had said these things, it's basically giving him their last sermon. When he said these things, he knelt down, he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all of them. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Okay, how many guys in church have you seen praying on their knees and then kissing and hugging? This is weird. This is kind of femmy, kind of, kind of femmy to me. So they're at a beach. He's getting ready to leave. They're at a beach. Imagine, you know, they're in the sand. They're praying together. He said, I'm leaving you. And then they, they can't believe it. And they start crying. They hug him and they kiss him. He goes from a killer to a guy that really loves people. What happened? I mean, that's from as cold as you can get to as hot as you can get. What happened? Well, he met Christ, absolutely, but he was convinced of something else. I think he was convinced of something that really makes you alive. And it's found in verse 28 and 29. Actually, I'll just read 28. Because here's his conviction, and he uses very emphatic language. 
Acts chapter 20, 28. Lost my spot. And today, by the way, I'm going to have us turn to a lot of passages. The reason why is lately I've been, I think I've been thinking very highly of my opinions lately, and I realize my opinions don't mean anything. It's the word that means everything. So I'm going to start trying to make sure everything is grounded more solidly in the word. But look at verse 28. He begins by saying, pay careful attention to yourselves. So he's saying, pay attention. Pay attention to what? Well, pay attention to all the flock. And he's talking to the leaders of the Ephesians church, and he's saying, pay attention to you and God's people. Flock are like a flock of sheep, the followers of the shepherd, Jesus. So we are considered a flock right here. So he says, uh, pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Now, Paul really believes in the church. And the reason he believes in the church, because honestly, the church is God's fireplace. It's where God has, he's designed this to keep us warm, but not just keep us warm, to make us alive, to keep us accountable, to have us growing in his son. The church is the vehicle he designed. But before we even talk about that and look really specifically at that verse, people don't believe this anymore. They just don't, especially in America. There's this new movement. You might have heard me talk about it a lot, but last year they codified it and they called it the Dunners, D-O-N-E-R-S, the people just that are done. I'm done. I'm done with church. I don't need it. And there's a lot of reasons, but if you take some of these articles and start reading them and kind of trying to find out why are people done, it usually comes to these four reasons, or one, three reasons. I don't really need to go to church. My relationship with God is personal. It's just me and him, all right? I can do it anywhere. Why do I need you? Second reason, because I'm done with organized religion. Don't you hate places where they have structures and programs and leaders who like authority? I just don't like it. And the third reason is it's probably, it's, I think it's man-made. I think those men, primarily, who want your money have designed this deep down. And so I can worship God without anybody else bothering me. I was reading this book. It's called Why We Love the Church, and it's kind of written against this attitude. And there's a book that came out about eight years ago. It's called The Gospel According to Starbucks. It's an amazing book. The writer says, Starbucks signifies passion and relationship and meaningful experiences. And that cup of coffee you enjoy in the morning is so much closer to the chalice of communion wine than you ever realize. Oh, but keep reading. He explains that Starbucks cup, it's about a frappuccino faith, interesting faith. It's about a vente life of romance and passion. It's about nothing less than the gospel according to Starbucks. And he says you can sum it up in the acronym BREW, B-R-E-W. Starbucks faith means being real while engaging the world, B-R-E-W. Sounds fantastic. If you keep reading, he says, 
when you have this kind of faith, a Starbucks faith. Get ready to be accelerated into the future with Jesus as a central part of your soul experience as you share at Starbucks over coffee with one another. And the writer kind of is mocking this. says, I imagine Jesus in a green apron asking me if I'd like a scone or organic chocolate bar to go with my latte and great conversation. Or maybe that's him behind the Mac updating his Facebook page. You never know. But the point is, that's church, man, where I can be authentic. I don't need to put on this face, this Christian faith, face like everybody else does. Is that really what church is? Is that what is, that what is happening here? Is that we are just a, it's a game, it's a show, that we're just fake? And real people are out there just in a real world drinking coffee. Is that, is that? What is the church? And is it important? Well, first of all, if you notice in there, the whole idea, I think, behind this idea is that church is a man-made institution. Is it really? Let's look at Acts 20.28 again. Whose idea is this? says in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So, from that first statement, the Holy Spirit is involved in the design and the church is of God. That means it was originated by God it's sustained by God. It's organized by God. It's his idea. He thought of it. You guys being together here, it's, it's not something that people who want to get rich just thought of so we can be rich in Kansas City. It's because God wants you as a group of people to get along, to be together, to love one another. Church, the word means assembly those called out who are believers. And it's assembly that is joined together to display his beauty. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 3. This, is a, this verse, every time I read it, it's really hard to believe, truthfully. I once heard one of the best ways to read the Bible is act like you've really never read it before, like you're an agnostic, and then saying, is this really true? But when you read this, this is, it's pretty amazing. Starting in verse 7 of Ephesians 3, listen to Paul's logic. Remember, he was Saul who was killing Christians who turned into the Paul that was weeping at Christians. And he says, verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So Paul became a pastor because God wanted him to be a pastor. Is his idea. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the reason why is because he's a murderer of Christians. Very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So his objective is to serve the church but help people see what God had hidden and reveal it. What did God have hidden? Verse 10. Listen to verse 10. 
So that, through the church, the assembled people, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Here's what this is saying. In you and you and me and you and you and you and you and you, God has asked to come together to display his manifold wisdom. Manifold means literally many colored or multi-variety. The manifold what? Wisdom. That means brilliance. So the many colored genius of God, he brought you, Kent City people, and me, Cleveland guy, to show him off to the heavens. What? That's weird. Like, really, that's kind of nutty. But that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Once I had a conversation with a guy talking about like, why do we come together? Do we come together because we're best friends? So some people go to church because they feel that they go to church because their friends are there. It's true, but that's not why we come together. Like, we don't necessarily come together because I'm going to find people just like me. We come together because God commanded it. He says, I want you guys to form a body because what it will do, it will, I think, baffle the world. I think it will baffle the world. And I, and I said this for service, and you guys have heard me say this a hundred times. I came from, really, a cool east, west side of Cleveland where people were really hip and all that kind of stuff. And I went to Kent City where people shoot deers. And they asked me to be the pastor. And if you go back home to where I'm from, Bay Village, Ohio, people say it like this, Bavalage, because people are very rich and upper class there. And I told people that I finally got my job, you know, and I graduated in this incredible high school and went to this college. I finally got my job up in Michigan in the boondocks. They would kind of say, what? Like, really, if you talk to them, they'll say, what? But I'll tell you what, coming here, I have found some of the most amazing people you've ever seen. But I didn't come here first because you're my friends. I came here because I believe God wanted me to be here. Then when you come here, you love. What is love? Remember, love gives to be a blessing. It doesn't come to be, get something. Church is a place where you're to love one another. And as you love, as you really love, it is it's inexplainable how this happens. And what happens? Watch some of the benefits of being a church. Go to Philippians, one book to the right. Philippians starting in chapter 1, verse 27. Watch some of the benefits. Verse 27 says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is a big statement. It's meaning, here's what this means. Are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Okay. That means I carry, I carry around Jesus' name. Okay, so if you're going to carry around Jesus' name, act like it. That's what Paul's saying. Act, will you act like it? So, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Act like you're carrying around Jesus' name. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. And this word you, if you notice in verse 27, it's not like you 
singular, it's y'all, plural. So you could even read it like this, even though we're not in Louisiana. I may hear of y'all, that y'all stand in firm one spirit. Kind of should read it like that. It's more, that's kind of how it reads. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So be one, be one. And when you are one, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Here's the benefits. There's encouragement in Christ. That means when you come together, you encourage one another in Christ. You lift them up. Sometimes people come in here broken. Like you've heard this probably a hundred times. The church is not a place of perfect people. It's a hospital for imperfect people. So when you come in here, you come in here broken, and hopefully you find encouragement where you can make it another day. Comfort from love. Participation in the Spirit, that is a, what I'd, that's an intangible we can't explain, but Jesus says we're two or more together. His Spirit is present. He's present here. He's active and alive in our hearts as we fellowship together. And affection, sympathy, that's friendship. That's liking people. That's caring. And then Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count your, your others uh, more significant than yourself. The benefits of being in the church are so unbelievable, I can't even tell you. Sometimes I wish I could tell you some of the things that goes, goes on behind the scenes, but I can't because we protect a lot of people. It's a lot of people who've done some bad things or they're in bad straits or they need some, some major help. And then when you explain that need, Derek, haven't you seen this church come to, I mean, the assistance of so many people? It's incredible. But you can't say that because we also protect dignity here. But if you could see some of the things that go on the first service, actually Gayla Thomas is sitting right there where you are, Darren and I said, sir, I said, Gala, do you remember about 10 years ago when this Amish family's van that didn't work anymore and it was freezing at night, like 8 o'clock at night, and they needed a place to stay, so we set them up in the blue gym, and you and Becky Ergang made them dinner, and Gala looks at me and goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I said, don't you remember that? Derek, do you remember, do you remember that? See, Derek does, I'm telling you, it was weird because I remember when they showed up, they called me up, I opened it up, and they couldn't really... They didn't want to talk to me. They all had beards kind of like that, you know, no mustaches, those hats like that. I, I said, hey, you want to play basketball? And I started dribbling, and they kind of looked at me kind of weird. But we gave them couches and blankets, and Becky and uh, Gayla and some other ladies brought them dinner over in the kitchen while they had to get their, their van repaired, and they just, those ladies were there like that. And personally, things that I've seen from my own family, what I've seen when we go through tough times. I can remember when my dad died, I went home to Cleveland to see him. Steve Buckner, I know he doesn't want to say anything about that, came over to my house to say, I'll do whatever you need. What do you need? The church is an amazing place. It gets tore up a lot. People mock it an awful lot. But it's valuable. 
valuable because it does three things. You know how we're distanced from God? This is where we preach about the amazing God and it brings you close. Second week we said it's deceitful when we learn from scriptures. It opens our eyes to truth. And the third thing, it's hopefully a place where you receive love. Sadly, a lot of churches aren't. But they should be. It's funny in the Bible when you read, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the, the church was important to people. It was really important, so important, discipline really worked in the first church. Because people wanted to be part of the community, but now when you try to discipline somebody, they'll just go to another church or they just won't go to church thinking they, they don't need the church. But back in the day, the church was valuable. For some reason, it doesn't seem as valuable anymore. Is it valuable? Look at Acts 20.28. 20, you tell me if it's valuable. I'll just read this. And then you assess in your own mind, is it valuable? Paul writes in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So it's his idea. Secondly, listen to this phrase. Which he obtained with his own blood. So the word obtains means to buy. So to purchase the church, to purchase the people of God, he spent the life of his son to purchase you. Are you valuable? If you buy something and it costs everything you have, that thing you buy probably means an awful lot to you. So my question is, if he gave his son, you're pretty valuable. And I think what has happened is we don't believe that anymore. I want to read this this, uh, from this book, let's see what page is that. And I want you to listen really closely, and he hit it. This Kevin DeYoung hits it right on the button. Listen to what he says. I can't help but feel that lurking beneath the surface in much of the current disillusionment with the church, meaning right underneath the surface of why people don't value the church, is because they have a disease with the traditional message of salvation. People are passionate about the poor, the environment, third world debt, but they seem embarrassed by a violent, bloody atonement for sin, let alone any mention of the afterlife that hangs in the balance. Everyone, it seems, has a vision for the church that Jesus talked about in Matthew 16, 18, that the gates of hell shall not prevail. Many people read this today as a word about the church's role in liberating the oppressed, bringing shalom, or storming the authority structures. But the reference to gates of hell is a Jewish euphemism for death. Jesus' initial description of the church focused not on changing the world, but on the hope of eternal life. My observation is that as people grow tired of hearing about the atonement, salvation, the cross, in the afterlife, they grow tired of church because the more that sin and redemption and heaven and hell recede into the background, the more the church just becomes one among several options for making a difference in the world. What he, here's what he's saying. We forgot something. We, we forget. I think daily we forget. 
that you are a son and daughter of the person who sits at the right hand of the Father and we're going to sit next to him. I think we see through a glass darkly when it says in 1 Corinthians, a muddy glass that we don't see what we're going to be, we only see what we are. So when I look at you, I see some people that are mad at me or I've offended or offended at me or think I'm really a bad preacher and I get mad, I get defensive, like I hate this church. Ah. But if I see you who you're going to, do you know who you're going to be? We are, we, we, we walk on the edge of sanity all the time. I think Christianity, it, it stands on this razor's edge of the phenomenal. You are going to be immortal. You are going to be indestructible. You are going to look just like Christ. You're going to be glorified. And you are going to be a co-heir with him. Go to Romans 8, starting in verse 16. Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. So we're children of God. If you believe in Christ, that's why forgiveness in the gospel is everything to us. That's why a bloody atonement is everything to me because it brings me peace with God and I become a child of God. If you are, according to verse 16, a child of God, then verse 17 says, if you're a child, then you are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That word heirs isn't really in our vocabulary. Here's what it means, basically. If I am a rich father, I wish my kids, my kids probably wish I was a rich father. If I own millions of dollars, Joseph would own it when I die. He's my heir. Sadly, Joe's going to get a, night, a 2000 uh, a relay, Saturn relay, <laughs> that runs on brandy, Jack. I don't know, but... But you are a son, you are a daughter of the king of the universe. Of the king of the universe. You sit with Christ, so you own all, it's yours. But you don't believe that. The way you can tell you don't believe that is the church doesn't mean much, and we're just here to help the poor. Yeah, we're here to help the poor because we love them, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to, man, to try to get more people to buy into this. Listen to what verse 18 says. And Jared pointed this out in the first service to me. It says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. And I said this, can you, the glory, if you compare what we're going to be like, it's just you can't compare it. And Jared said, don't even say that. It says it's not worth comparing, so why are we even comparing it? Like that's a, that's a profound thought. Here's what he's saying. The sufferings you're going through right now, truthfully, they're hard, absolutely. They're real. But heaven is going to be... The best way I can explain it, somebody just had a baby and, I, and they had a tough delivery, but once they had that baby, they forgot all about their delivery. Why? Because that kid was everything. I mean, it was worth everything. That's what heaven is. It's worth, every, it's worth everything. So our message is forgiveness. 
So is it valuable? It's, it's everything. So the third thing then, that's why Paul says, if you go back to Acts 20, he says one more thing about the church. We need to be so uh, sold on God's design that we've got to warn people about leaving, about being deceived, about quitting. Look at verse 28 and 29, or verse 29. It says, I know that after my departure, because Paul's leaving the church, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. That last phrase, every time I read a man crying in the Bible, it's, could you have you ever seen a man cry for the church of God in this church? Like really cry. I've seen a man cry about an eight-point buck he shot or a, his team lost. Usually the, they're wearing blue. I've seen them cry over that. Do you ever see a guy cry because he's, he wants the church to be stronger? I've seen a few maybe. But normally we don't because it's not that important to us. But Paul cries because he's worried that wolves will come in. People acting like Christians who actually will put a prick in other people's ears and they'll say, this church is just full of hypocrites. It's full of hypocrites. They'll put a prick in your ear that, you know what? It's really not that important. It just isn't. You got a lot of free, just use your free time. You got, you're a busy person. You don't need these people. They're just... They're obnoxious, kind of fake. Go to 1 John chapter 2. First John is towards the end of the New Testament, chapter 2. Verse 18. It says, Children, it is the last hour. Remember we said one of the signs it's the last hour? It's the love of most will grow cold. Here's another sign. Children is the last hour, as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. There's going to be a guy that's called the Antichrist. He's a fake Messiah. Anti is, means non-Messiah. But he's going to look like it. But he hasn't come yet. And in the meantime, other Antichrists, people that have the spirit of Antichrist, will show up now and then. And how, here's how you know that they've arrived. Verse 18, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Kind of a tongue twister, but what he's saying is the way you can tell somebody doesn't have the Spirit of God with them is they just all of a sudden leave and they're done. They're just done. And oftentimes when they're done, they will kind of badmouth the people that they left. And usually when they're done, they might say, well, I'm going to walk with Christ on my own. I can do it. But like that cold ember, they just start fading away. I've seen it a lot, truthfully. Where people that I once, I mean, I, they were my friends. Now they can't even look me in the eye. 
you want to ask for forgiveness, but they hate you so much, they don't even want to, oh, it's that pastor again. Where you felt that, when people leave Christ, they just start kind of blaming you. Oh, they're goody-goodies. They're judgmental. They're judgmental. Just because I get drunk and I sleep with people and I swear, you have no right to judge me. It's not judgment. It's what you're doing. Judgment is figuring out the motive for why you do it. But you are doing that. Well, you have no right to tell me not to do that. I don't, but Christ does. Judgmental. I was... uh, I read that one last time. So how do we then allow the church to warm us up? Go to Romans. This will be the last scripture I have you turn to. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Starting in verse 9. So Romans chapter 12 talks about body life, church life. In verse 9, it says, Let love be genuine. Love for the saints. Love for the Christians be genuine. And it said, Abhor what is evil. See, because love does have a hard edge. Abhor what is evil, but hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Look at this next part. It says, Outdo one another in showing honor. What does that mean? These are some of these verses we probably have skimmed over, but what does it mean to outdo one another in showing honor? So, for instance, when I'm with somebody, let's say I'm, I'm with Derek working in the office, my objective should be to respect and honor and show dignity to him and try to outdo his respect and honor to me. Imagine if we did this. Then the world would wake up and go, what's wrong with those people? They're too nice to each other. They really like each other. It says, uh, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Jump to verse, chapter 13, verse 8. It's, the middle of 13 or the beginning of 13 is about being a good civilian. Then it goes back to loving the church, which is verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, which are the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, but if you love that person, you're not, you will not commit it. If you love the lady you're lusting after, you'll stop lusting after her. You won't commit adultery. That's why love works in that passage. You shall not murder. That Love really works in that one, too. If you want to murder somebody and you love them, you won't want to murder them anymore. I've seen that happen in my own life. No, I'm kidding. But that works. Seeing if you guys are tracking with me, you're like, that's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah, don't murder people. That's bad. Don't hate them in your heart either. That's murder. Then it says, you shall not steal. If I really love somebody, I won't take what they have. And then it says, you shall not murder. I mean, shall not covet. What does that mean? 
it's not just stealing, but it's being jealous. If I really love somebody who's succeeding, I should be honestly praising God for their success. Not be jealous of them, because I love them. And any other commandment that are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Go to the next slide. There it is. That's when things will start to get hot. In this book, it says, has four questions if you are thinking about leaving a church. If you've come here and you're wondering, you know, uh, yeah, I'll go to church, but is it really that important? Or some of you are like, I'm just done. Has here's four questions. Number one, are you rejecting the church or are you rejecting faith? It says there's a disturbing trend in many of the church lever books. People are not just getting bored with church. They are rejecting historic Christianity, which teaches doctrine. And doctrine is, it has things that you do and don't do and things that are true and aren't true. Christianity teaches demands. And Christianity also teaches about damnation. People don't like that. When you leave doctrine, demands, and damnation, you're not just leaving the church, you're leaving historic Christianity. Second question, are you trying to have your cake and eat it too? This means that basically you're leaving the institutional church with its buildings and programs and paid staff because you want to go be missional by helping at a homeless shelter or taking care of somebody um, through some kind of organization that's outside the church. It says, have you ever stopped to think that someone pays the bills for the building of the homeless shelter and the other goodwill events out there. Someone turns on the heat in the morning. Someone maintains a calendar of events every month. The church leavers can feel good about tithing to the nonprofit of their choice, never stopping to think that this super, super spiritual, super cool outfit has a board of directors and an accountant and filed the paperwork to become a 501c3 back in the day. He says, I'm not against homeless shelters or parachurch nonprofits. I just want the anti-institutional church leavers to see that these are institutions too. When people hear the word institution, they hear programs and organization. And man, when you do that, it gets kind of, you know, it's human. Humanism, it's man involved. Why can't we just be spiritual without the leadership, without all of the organization? Eugene Peterson put it like this, sort of like a tree. A tree is a living organization, organism. But a tree also needs bark, branches, and stems to hold the fruit. There's order and even an organism. They don't like the church because it's too hierarchical, but then hate it when it has poor leadership. They wish the church could be more diverse, but then leave to meet in a coffee shop with other well-educated 30-somethings who are into film festivals, NPR, and carbon offsets. They bemoan their over-programmed church, but then think of a hundred complex, resource-hungry things the church should be doing. They want leaders with vision, but don't want anyone to tell them what to do. They want a church where the people really know each other and care for each other, but then they complain that the church today is an isolated country club. You, can have, you can't have your cake and eat it too. The church is a human institution. It's interesting, last year I heard the word institution. It means something that you set up for the purpose that it will have a long-term standing. Institutions aren't, we, we have, we've turned that word into something rotten, when actually it's an incredible thing. 
So, for instance, even though I make fun of University of Michigan, it's an incredible institution, Jerry, isn't it? Even a football program is an incredible institution. It's been there for th years and years and years. And you jump on that bandwagon, but why don't you like it when the church tries to have sustainability? Third thing, are you making an idol out of authenticity? This is interesting. The Bible's all for honesty, truth, and sincerity, but authenticity is something a little different. If authentic is simply the opposite of fake, contrived, and hypocritical, then I'm all for it. I like people who are honest with their feelings. But godliness demands a lot more than just being real. What does real mean today? Self-abasing. It's introspection, doubt, uncertainty, anger, and worldliness. So if other Christians seem pure, assured, and happy, we despise them for being inauthentic. There are people that won't come to church because they think people are just too happy sometimes. They believe in God just too much, and they have peace. Oh, come on, I never have peace. I doubt all the time. That's not authenticity. That's just you're a complainer. That's all it is. Sometimes there real, is real suffering. And we do need to say we're hurting. That's fine. But why do we also, the authentic people, like to mock Christians who are saying, you know, God has got me through some terrible times, and he's good. That's authentic. Just as much as the other one is too. And then final one is, are you repeating the mistakes of the previous generations? Clearly, a growing number of Christians don't like the church. The church doesn't work for them anymore, and by their reasonings, if the church doesn't work for you, then the best thing to do is leave. This isn't the first time Christians have been tired of the church. It's the whole church history. But here's what he writes, and I, this is exactly what I believe. So I'm not worried for the church. She will survive the latest revolution, her services, her sermons. Her institutional form will not disappear. However, I am worried for the church leavers. I wonder if they will be happy in five years with their new form of church. I wonder if they will keep up the revolution without the life support of structure and routine. I wonder if they will escape their own cynicism and anger. Most of all, I worry that in leaving the church, they are leaving the faith of the church and the Christ of 2,000 years of church history. I feel sorry for their hurts, and I worry about their hearts. And to me, when you leave the church, you're left out in the cold. My prayer for you is that this service, truthfully, will help you to see that you were paid for with the blood of Christ, that you're intended to be part of community. And when you are, you become more like him. You grow from a cold heart to a heart that starts to beat again. Let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, if there's some people, and I'm sure there are, that people that really have been frustrated and doubt the purpose of church or don't see any reason to, to join in or even to love another, I pray that God, they'd help, you'd help them see that your son died to, to purchase a bride, his bride, the church. It's in your name we pray. Amen.